Hi, this is Howard Jacobson, and I am delighted to be on the phone today with one of the luminaries of uh, vegetarian cooking, uh, Nava Atlas. Hello, Nava. Good morning. Hi. So you're you're out. Uh, you're ambulating, right? You're walking uh, along. I the, am. The beautiful Hudson Valley. I have Valley. to apologize. I, I am just now crossing a somewhat busy road, but I'm going to be getting onto a really very quiet and extremely scenic road in about two seconds. Okay. Here I am. Well, just, okay. just avoid the traffic. Okay. Now it's really quiet and beautiful where I am now. Wonderful. So you're you're surrounded by greenery, huh? I am. I'm so lucky. I mean, I get to walk out the door and see uh, the Schwangunk Mountain Range and um, the the tower. It is, if anybody's ever heard of Mohonk Mountain House, it's just this beautiful, old-fashioned resort in the Hudson Valley. And so I'm sort of facing it as I walk. It's gorgeous. Mm. You have a, you have a great uh, sort of new new farming community up there, don't you? Well, we have many CSAs up here and, and lots of farms. And, you know, the nice thing about the Hudson Valley is that you can hop on a bus and be in New York City in an hour and a half. And so I really feel like I have the best of both worlds because I love it up here, but I also really love the big city. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Well, and so that's that's probably fitting for someone whose latest cookbook is called Wild About Greens. <laughs> Yes. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll be talking about your your cookbooks. You've you've been writing cookbooks for almost thirty years, right? I'm afraid so. <laughs> oh, you must have started when you were eight or something. So, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. You know, maybe six or eight, something like that. Um, so, um, why don't you t- tell us a little bit about you know your 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 work and uh, who you are and what you do, just to give people a uh, a frame of reference for the rest of the conversation. Okay, well, as you said, I've been writing cookbooks for a long time. First, they were vegetarian, and now my last few books have been vegan as I am, and I'm continuing in this field. I'm also um, a visual artist, and people say, well, how do you have time to do all the things you do? And I say, well, I have a lot of energy due to my plant-based diet. Hmm. So I also exhibit. Um, I have works in many museums and academic collections, and... Um, I, I also maintain a, a very large website called VegKitchen.com, which is sort of an aggregation site. I have a lot of guest contributors uh, and recipes, health tips, nutrition, all things plant-based. So it keeps me busy. I feel like you know, I'm kind of running three or four different careers at all given times. Uh-huh. Well, so it's, so it's, it's very important for you to be well-fueled. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've never had any issue or problem with my plant-based diet. It really suits me very well. Um, my family has always sort of just happily gone along with whatever I want to make and whatever I want to cook. So we haven't had the, you know, the issues that I hear about people who, that one or two people in the family want to go plant-based, the other ones don't. And it gets to be, a, you know, a bit of a logistical problem. So I feel really fortunate that my family just is happy to do whatever I do. Uh-huh. And it's worked out very well. Well, I guess wh- whoever can cook best pretty much sets the rules. <laughs> well, yes, but, you know, then there's those, in those families where people, you know, somebody's adamant about the fact that they don't want to, you know, be on a completely plant-based diet. I've, I've heard stories, so it's it's not always easy to navigate those kind of waters. Right. Well, it's, it sounds like there was a transition in your own career in your own eating when you went from vegetarian to vegan? I assume that means uh, eliminating dairy and eggs. 
Right, and that's kind of an interesting story that I've told whenever I give talks. Uh, when I was uh, in my teens, for some reason as a child, I just never enjoyed meat. I can't tell you why. I just Mainly I couldn't stand to look at it. It was more of kind of the aesthetic quality of it. I didn't even really equate it that much with animals, but just sort of like the flesh on the plate just really repelled me. So when I was a teenager, first I asked my mom if I could cook sometimes so I could disguise it, but then the word vegetarian floated into my consciousness, and I became vegetarian, much to my family's chagrin. But when I saw that I was really determined and I did cook for myself, they started to want what I was having, and believe me, at that time, it wasn't really all that appealing looking. I would, you know, go to those dusty health food stores and I'd get, you know, brown rice and barley and lentils and make all kinds of sort of brownish concoctions. But at the time, to me, it was just delicious compared to meat. So I really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, my kind of my enthusiasm rubbed off. So fast forward to when we were became a family of four, we raised our kids vegetarian and uh, we explained to them when they were small, we didn't go into graphic detail, but we just said we don't want to eat our animal friends. And, you know, for kids, that's a, an explanation. And we said, but, you know, if we're outside the house and you want to try something at somebody else's house, you're free to do so because I felt like that decision has to come from their heart and not something imposed. But, you know, having gotten that little explanation from us that we don't want to eat our animal friends, they look at us and say, well, why would we want to do that? And they really were, you know, they, you know, knock on wood, they were real stalwarts. They were never tempted by meat. And this was sort of just before the age of the Internet where information is so readily available and you don't really... You know, we didn't hear that much about the dairy industry and all the hormones and antibiotics that are in milk. But then, you know, things sort of, again, floated to my consciousness, and I thought, well, maybe if we buy our dairy products from this local, beyond organic, ethical, so-called dairy farm, I'll feel better about buying dairy products. So we decided to take a little field trip with our kids, who are then, I believe, 10 and 12, and we saw this bucolic, beautiful dairy farm. But then, you know, we saw things that we weren't expecting to see, which is we saw little calves in crates. We saw the room where the farmer proudly said that this is where the cows are impregnated every year. <laughs> and uh, we, those were just things that we we weren't expecting. And we all went home kind of with our own quiet thoughts and, you know, it didn't take but a day for my 10 year old to announce that he was vegan. And then the rest of us followed suit very quickly. That reminds me of, uh, you know, one of the the books about food that I find very thoughtful um, is Charles Eisenstein's book called the yoga of eating. And um, it's not a pro vegan book by any means, but he talks about, the, you know, our food choices really determine what we say yes to in the world. And it sounds like that trip to the farm made your son and then all of you say, you know what, I don't want to say yes to this. Even though it's called humane, it's still not respectful, it's still not natural. Um, exactly. It, uh, well, it was, it, yes. You know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was done. Oh, what I was going to say is that if you see it in front of you, you know, and I ask, well, what happens to those little guys in the crates? He said, well, they either become, you know, very kind of blithely. They either become 
veal or steer. And I thought, well, you know, so we are part of the, the veal cycle here. There's just no, once you see it, it's really hard to deny it. And also the fact that you kind of really realize that these cows are forced to lactate by humans. And it's it's a hard life for them. Even it, even the ones that are on these bucolic farms that are so beautiful, and yeah, they're in the pasture eating grass, but, you know, they're constantly made to uh, be pregnant and lactate and then have their calves torn from them at what day one or two. And we all, I think, just sort of saw it and said, we just don't want to be part of that anymore. There's yeah, no way to rationalize it. It reminds me of the, the novel, The Hand, a Handmaid's Tale. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the, human, the human overlords are not, uh, don't, don't appear very sympathetic from the eyes of, uh, of a lot of farm animals. Well, you know, I know this is already a cliche within the plant-based community, but when you think about it logically, humans are the only species that drinks the milk of another species. And also, so why did we choose cows? Why not? you know, horses or elephants or giraffes or, or anything, and we are the only species that drinks milk after being weaned. It just, no wonder so many people are lactose intolerant. It's probably just a food that humans don't need after a certain age. Yeah, you know, when I, um, I, I became vegan in 1990 after reading John Robbins' Diet for a New America, and then I've been sort of all over the map since then, really experimenting with what serves me and my understanding of what serves the planet. And I have to say, I've never really thought about dairy since then. So, you know, there have been times when I lived in South Africa where meat seemed like a reasonable choice. Uh, we have chickens in our yard, and uh, I'll eat maybe one or two eggs a month. Um, but dairy just n- never made sense to me after, after that. It never, you know, it never really had an appeal um, mm-hmm. Either, either taste-wise or intellectual-wise, just this idea of you know, you know, would you would you suckle on a rat or a, or any other <laughs> mammal? Yeah, true. Hmm. Um, so, um, I'm 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 curious about your uh, your body of of cookbook uh, work. So, um, and I'm also on your the about Nava page on Veg Kitchen. Where you talk about your uh, your your topics and particular expertise, you you kind of make a big deal about holidays, right? I do. So I ho- don't know why because just... <laughs> I'm not a big party girl, but you know, I, I think holidays are just you know there's a, there's a point of connection across cultures, and you know we're not religious or anything. We're we're a Jewish family, but it just I, I feel like when we celebrate holidays, and I, I always call myself a, a food Jew, because we don't really, you know, go to synagogue or anything, but I, I just feel like it connects us with our culture, our cultural background, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people love to celebrate Christmas, even if they're not Christians. There's something about that holiday that's very cultural right now, and you, you feel like you're kind of connecting with or bonding with people who are celebrating something at the same time. Mm. So there's something about nostalgia, comfort. We live in a very uncomfortable world right now. So I think when we when we have those touchstones, it does comfort us. Mm. And I'm guess I'm thinking, you know, my experience that holidays are one of the few times where I really associated the food in front of me with an with a conscious act of of love and generosity. Exactly. 
Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You know, no, no matter what was in the meal, <laughs> you know, it was there was still this nutrient of, of, of caring that you know you can't get from you know a, a rest where, where you don't know any you know no you don't know the names of anyone who made your food. Right, or or just of the rest of the years, kind of rushed and make do meals. This is you know sitting down for holiday meals. It's such a conscious act. And I think people just feel there's a primal need for that. You know, on the flip side, though, holidays can be really stressful for people who've gone completely vegan. Mm. Um, there's that, oh, my gosh, you're not going to eat this that I slaved over for, you know, over a hot stove for two days. <laughs> people email me or they contact me through Veg Kitchen with questions a lot during the holidays. And that's one of the reasons I, I really love the, uh, the website and the Internet uh, back you know, 15 years ago when I was first writing cookbooks, if someone wanted to contact me, they had to do snail mail, and the pusher would softly send me the letter after six months. And now, if somebody is, literally, if somebody's cooking something for Thanksgiving dinner, I have my computer on because I know that people can reach me in real time if they say, oh, you know, I don't have this, so can I substitute that? And I can just right away respond, yeah, go for it. So it's really a great thing. But, uh, you know, aside from the purely food questions, people say, well, you know, I'm going to my aunts and people are going to give me a really hard time and what should I do? So there's that issue too. Yeah, and especially because holidays are not always easy anyway, right? So we get together with all the people who push all our buttons and... You know, a lot of us learned to um, to anesthetize our feelings through food. Well, you know, on one hand, you and I first gave the more romantic version about the comfort, about the connection, or anything. But there, there definitely is this flip side too. There, there, there is an emotional element to food. It, it does become symbolic, and it's like, how can you not eat this? We've always done this, and and you know, I get so much mail from people who say, I'm so excited because this is going to be my first. Thanksgiving as a vegan, and either they're really excited or they're a little nervous because of the kind of the fallout and the repercussions they might get. So, you know, what I say to them is just the holiday table is not a place to get into political or really graphic discussions, and if people kind of are starting to push your buttons, just be polite but be firm. Just stand in your conviction and say, I don't do this anymore, I don't eat this. Um, I appreciate your offering it to me, but I'm going to pass. I, nobody has ever given me a hard time because, you know, I don't give them wiggle room. I'm not rude or anything, but I don't give them an opening. They know that there's no negotiation there, mm-hmm. and that usually works, and it doesn't hurt people's feelings. Right. Yeah, because I, I, I think of, you know, there's not that many holiday meals during the year, so, you know, why why... why devote a cookbook to it, but for, for people who want to maintain this lifestyle and who also want to maintain their family relations, because it's very easy to know, you know, go off, say goodbye to your birth family and say, well, they're not my real people and just, you know, find a vegan potluck or, you know, and lose the connection. But I, you know, I see those holiday times as real sort of PowerPoints where people can, can reinforce and reintegrate part of their new identity with their with their old family or where they can just, you know, collapse one way or the other. 
Yeah, and then there, there, and you don't even have to choose. Like I know in your area, the Triangle Vegetarian Society hosts a vegan Thanksgiving meal. I think it's the Saturday or Sunday before the actual holiday. So you can do both. You can go to your family, but you can also celebrate in your new way with people who want to eat the same way. And I understand that event is growing and people fly in from all over the country. I think last year, I think they had a thousand people. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard about it. We, we talked about, you know, more than 12 people is a reason for me not to go. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I hear I, you. <laughs> I can see that the need that that serves. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, people are finding new ways to celebrate, but sometimes they want to really, like you said, they just want to be with their familiars. So, so it is. It's a, you know, it's an interesting topic, and it really isn't just the winter holidays. When you think about it, there's Passover and Easter. That's kind of the other two biggies. And then during the midsummer, even though it has really nothing to do with independence, there's the 4th of July, you know, the barbecue, and that's a big thing. Um, that's a, a, another big kind of vegan event. Well, we don't want to eat the meat on the grill. We don't want to grill our veggies or tofu hot dogs on the same grill that meat has been grilled on. So that presents a new set of challenges. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, we're putting, we're putting, to, we're putting together now a, uh, a Father's Day edition of, uh, the, of our newsletter and, you know, talking a lot about grilling. You know, because I looked at Amazon for Father's Day gifts, and they're they're, oh, yeah. they're pretty much all like grills and grill accessories and and spice packs and even like um, monogrammed branding irons. So you can oh, you yeah. can put your initials on the on the steak. Oh, that's disgusting! <laughs> but it's funny because you think, well, you know, it's almost a throwback. You think of all these these gifts for you know. The 1950s or 60s suburban dads, that kind of model has been shifting as well. <laughs> so grills and ties, right? It's yeah. The well, you know, there's you know, there's something. When I remember being a kid um, and seeing, you know, the one time of the year my dad would put on an apron and, you know, quote cook something was like the, you know the the summer barbecues. And right. the, the men would all stand around the grill and they would, you know, offer suggestions and advice and the flames would fly up. And, you know, there was nothing that I wanted to do more than that. That was like a, a real, you know, sort of a definition of manhood is being able to put the lighter fluid and throw the match in and make fire and burn meat like that. <laughs> well, it's, there's something primal about that, isn't it? It's like, you know, going back to caveman days or something. Yeah. So, and then probably the women were in the kitchen making the... uh Salad and potato salad. Well, they were they were also preparing the meat, right? <laughs> For, forming the burgers, uh, marinating the the chicken. The other, they were doing pretty much everything except the show. But. Well, I do have a lot of grilling information on Veg Kitchen, but obviously not meat. There's some really nice recipes using tofu, seitan, tempeh, and then combining those with grilled veggies are just so delicious. Yeah, I and saw- I'm a really I'm sorry, go ahead. I saw, well, I saw the um, uh, a recipe that you posted um, from, from was it Tamison? Oh, yes. Yes, she has a new book called Grilled Gone Vegan, which is a very nice title and looks like a really nice book. But I was going to say I'm a really lazy griller, and people don't believe this about me, but I'm actually kind of a lazy cook, even though I've written a million cookbooks. I like things to be very simple and straightforward. 
And like many people, I have a very, very busy life. And so I'm not a chef who's there all day concocting things that take three hours to make. I like things that, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. So grilled veggies are so nice because you just heat it up. You can cook right outdoors. Um, I And because I'm so lazy, I like the electric grill, which maybe you don't get that charcoal taste, but supposedly the charcoal isn't really that healthy anyway. Right. You get those nice grill marks and you can cook things really quickly. And somehow it's almost like a, a high-heat stir-fry. It just brings out the real flavor and sweetness in veggies. Right. Well, short time. I'm I'm glad you talked about the you know, what you call laziness. You know, one one of the ways I've been taught is, um, I think I think it was some some 19th century you know general might have been Bismarck or something who who divided the world into into four groups. He said like there's there's smart and hardworking people, smart and lazy people, stupid hardworking people, and stupid lazy people. And his, you know, as, as, as a general, he wanted his commanders to be the smart, lazy people because they would always figure out the, the best way to do something, whereas the sort of the smart, hardworking people would just, you know, just Oh, that's so interesting. I work. love that. So, so I do notice that one of your cookbooks is called The Vegetarian Five-Ingredient Gourmet. Um, yes, and we use the word gourmet in that particular title very loosely. I just uh-huh. we, we couldn't find another word that would sound nice at the end. But you know that's interesting. Is that book is dated? It was it came out in two thousand one, which means I wrote it in the year two thousand. It does have vegan options, but you know dairy and vegan is a time where I was kind of making my own transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is for listen. There's a lot of people who are really, really busy. They come home at 6.30, they're hungry, they don't know what to make, they have kids at their knees, and there's a real need for that. And I was going to say that even though it's a very dated, almost, I, I dare say, not a very attractive book, there's not a single photo in it, it still sells really well. So I feel like there's really a market for that, and not just because, you know, I'm not doing it just because there's a market, but I know there's people out there who want to eat well, but they just don't have the time to fucks around in the kitchen for an hour, even an hour, let alone an hour and a half or two. Right. Well, I think a lot of a lot of those cookbooks, you know, where it's like some some gourmet chef who's got a list of twenty seven ingredients and nineteen steps. You know, to me, that's like clothing on the runway. You know, it's it's sort of yeah. fun to it's fun to it's fun to watch people walk down. You know, and swish and turn and and but no one you know no one I know would ever wear anything like that, and Absolutely. almost no one I know would ever cook like that. Yeah, it's sort of more with the artistry of it, and you're right. It's almost more fun to read and look at than to actually contemplate doing. I also, I, I'm sort of opposed to things that have millions of ingredients because I feel like in the end they cancel one another out. There has to be some dominant flavor or some dominant ingredient. Otherwise, it's just a big mishmash with lots of spices, and you end up not knowing what you're eating. So I, I like to streamline I like recipes to be very straightforward. I like it to be something that I know that a friend of mine who isn't a big cook can come home at 6 o'clock and gladly make. We, I mean, otherwise, people resort to the takeout menu or make-do or picking up something from the drive-up window. So the goal is really to get people to cook and eat at home and not to show off. Mm-hmm. Not for me to show off, that is. <laughs> Right. So, well, let's talk about like cooking and eating at home for for a minute, because as you know, a lot of people who are listen will listen to this um, 
are considering a transition and they're you know they they'll have a lot of staples and and sort of go-to foods that are not plant-based um and when you know their their strategy for plant-based will be mostly some sort of takeout like hey there's a vegan burrito at Chipotle or hey here's something i can order at Outback or something like that you know or pick if i can get, i can grab this sandwich at the at the deli you know down the road from where i work but you know what what are some strategies that you find help empower people to cook for themselves I find whenever I post my how to set up a plant-based pantry post on the Dutch Kitchen's Facebook page, people kind of go crazy for it. So I think that's really the foundation is transforming your kitchen so it has ingredients that you can go to. And then all you need to add to those would be the fresh produce, which I think is really critical. So it's not what you said kind of brought up a point was sometimes when people make the transition, it's almost like, okay, now I'm going to make vegan versions of meat items. And it is, I mean, it, it really is a, a shift in thinking, so I'm not minimizing it. You know, we, we get so used to certain paradigms and we're so used to kind of, in fact, a reader just emailed me, you know, that she's from the South and she just went plant-based and she's so used to the meat and to, you know, starch and vegetable uh, triad on the plate and she really wants to break away from it. So what I say to people is, you know, think of things that you like to eat when you go out, and not necessarily like you said, just, you know, the, the meat sandwich, but you know, people like to go out for, let's say, Chinese or Mexican, or sometimes they like to go for a soup and sandwich or soup and wrap. Those kind of things are so easy to then translate at home. So let's say you like Chinese. Well, there's so many really delicious Asian noodles that you can stir-fry with vegetables or a, a vegetable stir-fry with tofu. And if you, you know, feeding a family and you're just trying to lure them into this, you can go to the health food store and get those really delicious little spring rolls, and that just makes the meal a lot of fun. Mexican is just so easy to do at home. Some um, refried bean burritos, um, soft tacos, vegan quesadillas, you know, all these things can be embellished with a really nice big salad or some sort of green veggies. See, another, I'm a big soup person, and I know busy people love to make a big pot of soup or chili at the beginning of the week or on Sunday and then just have it for a good part of the week. So soup and sandwich, soup and salad. You know, people, people kind of know what they like when they're eating out, but then they forget when they get home, and then they say, oh, my gosh, they get very kind of uh, paralyzed. What am I going to make? Right. And I think and a lot, another thing I find is that, you know, especially when I was a, a younger cook, I would want to make a soup, and I had all this stuff in the fridge, but I felt like a little bit paralyzed without a recipe. Like, yeah, could, you well, know, is, you know, is, is that okay to throw those things together, and what spices, and, you know... Do I put a can of tomatoes in it or not? It was, it was like I need I needed the um, someone else's authority to tell me that that what I wanted to eat was was actually a, a thing. You know, when when people say I just don't have this you know, feel for cooking or I'm not intuitive, I have to put myself in their position. If someone said, "Okay, go grow a garden," I would freak out. I really don't have any in your gardener. So. <laughs> Maybe you can sympathize with me. I have no idea what to do in a garden. 
So some people don't have any idea what to do in the kitchen. So I think for those people, yeah, it's okay to follow some basic recipes or rules. And the more you do it, the more intuitive you become. What are you working on these days in the uh, in, in the cookbook realm? Well, I'm working on a book that will be coming out next summer through Harper. And they actually came to me with a very interesting concept they wanted me to do. It's called Plant Power. And it's really, it starts from transforming your kitchen and how to do those pantry things and how to do meal planning and how to think of a new way of shopping before you even get to the recipes. So it's going to be kind of one-third how-to and then two-thirds kind of really essential recipes for the plant-based lifestyle. Huh. So that's, that sounds like it would be a really useful uh, sort of transition book. Absolutely. So, you know, the recipes are completely vegan, though we don't have the word vegan in either the title or the subtitle. It's probably in the tagline. So mm-hmm. it's plant power, how to practically and joyfully transform your kitchen, plate, and life. And the tagline will be, you know, with 125 essential vegan recipes, something like that. All right. That sounds great. Um, and Well, I'm to- finishing it up. This month, I hope, <laughs> the manuscript. Uh-huh. So when you, I, you know, I'm curious, because I've never thought of, you know, cookbook writing as anything like remotely close to what I could accomplish. When you, so do you, how do, how do you come up with recipes and, and test them and make sure they're going to be good? Oh, those are three really big questions. You know, I, I find I've been doing this for such a long time, but I, I naturally gravitated to creating and writing down recipes. And that's really how I started when I was first married, which was also a very long time ago. My husband was so amazed at what I just sort of threw together that he started to actually nag me to write things down. And he said, well, I want you to be able to make this again. So I started hmm. to write things down. And that became my first book. You know, my first book was called Vegetarian Hana, and I combined my recipes with my illustrations and literary quotations and graphic design. It was a very unusual cookbook at the time. And uh, yeah, it's sometimes I, when we were at Vita Vegan, I was on a panel about recipe development. And first, I thought, well, what really is there to say if you kind of do it intuitively? But our moderator, Grant Butler, asked some really good questions about testing, and I had to really think these things through. They are kind of big questions with long answers, but I think, I, you know, after doing it for so many years, I have really learned how to trust my palate and my, my you know, to do exact measurements. It, it isn't a small thing, but with much, you know, with some practice. Mm-hmm. I've, I've hey, become, I'm losing I, you a little I bit again. About it. Okay, I'll try to speak up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> right, well, it's it's good stuff. So I want to make sure people can uh, can um, absorb all the nutrients in the conversation. Okay. Um, Is this any better? I think so. I think you just need to keep uh, sort of shouting. <laughs> okay. Okay. So it's called Plant Power. It will be coming out in 2014. Yes. Okay. And uh, as you work, as you work on recipes, do you post them occasionally to Veg Kitchen for people to, to get a sneak preview? Uh, I try not to in this case. Uh, you know, once the book is nearing completion, I will give some sneak previews. But as I'm working on a book, it's almost like I want to 
kind of keep it close to the vest, so to speak. Uh-huh. Okay. Also make sure that things are thoroughly tested and really work well before they're out there. I did want to add that my photographer in this project is Hannah Kaminsky, who runs the Bittersweet blog and is an author in her own right. She's very talented. This book is going to be really very lushly photographed and very colorful. Good. I, you know, I used to make fun of like, you know, very shishi cookbooks with, with, with pictures, with great, you know, graphics in them. But I do find that uh, looking at the picture, like, actually literally like starts my digestive process. Definitely. And as the readers nowadays really require, they really demand, I should say, good photography. It, it does. It, it's very appetizing, especially if it's done well. Cool. So b- before we go, I want to ask you just about your, the, uh, the the greens cookbook the wild about greens um i was i was leafing through it recently and was was struck by actually how in my experience there's actually a lot of plant-based cookbooks that really don't have a lot of greens in them and i was just i was so delighted to see one where greens are kind of given center stage because they just seem to me to me to be the basis of a of a plant-based lifestyle well, unless you really know how to kind of what I call tame greens and tease the best qualities out of them, they can be very daunting. I'm not talking about, you know, baby spinach where you can just throw it in things, but, you know, if you bring home a big old head of mustard greens, most people would have no idea where to even begin with that. So I wanted to give people a point of beginning, and I tried to set the book up in such a way that if you bring home, you know, a big bunch of such and such from your CSA, you just turn to that in the introduction, and you know exactly what you can do with it. You know how to prepare it. You can see the list of recipes using it. And just making it as easy as possible for people to incorporate as many greens as possible into their diet. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, yesterday I, um, we were, were growing something that I thought was lettuce. It's a large, very large purple leaf, and I just ripped off a bit in the garden and, and tasted it and you know, it was it was like like the strongest horseradish I've ever had, and huh, so, you know, now, now I know why in, in that bed that plant was not bugged by the bugs. <laughs> but I don't uh. know what to, I don't know what to do with it. It's you know no no one else in my family would even eat it for the you know the experience of like you know having your sinuses you know cleared by a nuclear blast. Wow, I wonder what it actually is. Do you know? I don't. Um, I th- I don't even remember where where we got it. Whether it was a seedling from a nursery or a, I, c- I could check with my wife. But uh... you know, sometimes seeds can go astray, and sometimes you buy something and you plant it, and then I, a seed that didn't belong there starts to grow. Like my husband was trying to grow zucchini, and suddenly he was growing watermelons because <laughs> <laughs> some seeds got you know into that batch. But suddenly we have these giant watermelons. We don't know what to do with them. Huh. I just saw a recipe uh, online for, uh, for watermelon ham. Really? Seriously? You the watermelon slices, and they, they, they apparently come out a little bit like ham. So I have to, you can check that out. Well, that's in the past. We've gotten over our watermelon crisis. So I guess I won't have to be making watermelon ham, which I must admit doesn't sound too appealing anyway. <laughs> No, you, need, you you probably need the graphic. <laughs> um, all right, so so the so the idea of the greens book is that they're all they're all different because you know I'm I'm thinking a lot of the cookbooks that I have like call for in the recipe a bunch of greens, 
as, you know. Well, you know, they are interchangeable, and I when they when they are interchangeable, I let readers know when they really have their own distinctive qualities, like the bitter greens. You have to work them a little bit. You have to contrast them sometimes with more sweet ingredients, like let's say broccoli rabe or whatever it is you are growing, or escarole or mustard greens. It's 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 a matter of balancing their flavors with other simple things. Um, other greens are rather interchangeable. Like I would say, unless you're talking about raw greens, kale and collards and chard are very often interchangeable in certain types of recipes. But I made sure that people know that when they are interchangeable and when they do have their own particular needs and need to kind of be dealt with as just exactly what they are. Great. So, you know, for, for, for anyone who's, who's, uh, who's looking to, you know, boost your, your health, your immunity, your energy, uh, greens can be a really powerful part of your diet. And Wild About Greens is a encyclopedic guide to, uh, to making friends with and, uh, and ingesting these, these wonderful plant allies of ours. Absolutely. They're the, really, they're the most um, nutrient-dense food group on the planet. You know, if you maybe if you know how, let's say, esoteric superfoods, greens are really, like you said, they're your best ally. Right. And I was, ta- I was talking with um, a friend of mine, Catherine Nilbrink, who's an instructor for the T. Colin Campbell Foundation and who has, who has a background in uh, evolutionary biology. She says that basically greens were the foods that humans evolved to eat most easily of all, I don't know, plant or animal foods. It's just leaves, just, you know. The oh, easiest. that makes sense. Yeah, the easiest. You know what? That makes, I was going to say that it makes a lot more sense than drinking the milk of another species, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it even it even makes more sense than fruit, which is, you know, sort of hit or miss. Like there's a couple of weeks when right. the, the plant will fruit, but most plants with leaves, they have leaves, you know, as long as the sun's shining. Absolutely. And like you said before we were on the air that you have a lot of kale that overwintered. So it's something that's so hardy and almost always available, which is probably really important from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, until until we learn how to photosynthesize, I think we need to we need to make <laughs> friends with greens. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Nava Atlas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I hope you had a, you had a great walk. I did. It was wonderful. I'm sorry about the uh, little lapses in sound, but it was really fun to talk to you. Cool. Well, uh, I'll I'll post this for everyone, and uh, we will we will stay in touch. I hope, and I look forward to uh, to checking out Plant Power when it when it comes out. So, Nava Atlas, oh, thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank you, Howard.